Well, good morning, church. Thanks so much for being with us. We're so glad to worship and seek the Lord together. And those of you joining online, we're glad to do this. So let's get into the book of Acts together, shall we? Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 17 in your Bibles. Today, uh, today's message is entitled, Turning the World Upside Down. If you've been with us, you know that we've covered the first missionary journey of Paul, and now he's begun his second missionary journey, going through modern-day Turkey uh, towards that Roman province of Asia. Um, Paul took two men with him, Silas and Timothy, on this missions trip, and they tried to go into different cities in Asia there, as you see on the map. Um, However, the Holy Spirit forbade them. They were not able to go. There was no open door. And so, since that door was closed, they prayed, and then Paul had a dream of a Macedonian man calling out to them. And so the next morning, Paul woke up and said, guys, I think we should go to Macedonia. And so they headed over to Macedonia. And last week, we read about, um, in Acts chapter 16, they got to the city of Philippi. And after they cast a demon out of a servant girl, Paul and Silas were accused, they were arrested, stripped, beaten, and then imprisoned. And yet, in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, we read that at midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And so after being so mistreated, after their civil rights were so violated, after God allowed them to suffer so much simply for obeying His leading, how could Paul and Silas be singing and worshiping and praising the Lord? We read in Paul's letter to the Philippians that reveals where Paul's hope was in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 20. Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. You see, if you like to take notes, here's your first fill-in-the-blank in your note sheet. Even amidst suffering, Paul could worship because his hope was in eternity when God would right all wrongs. God would make all things right in eternity. But that night in jail, Paul wasn't looking for things to be made right immediately. And so God used Paul and Silas to lead several people to faith in Jesus, including the jailer and his family. And now that Paul and Silas have been released from prison, we pick up now in Acts chapter 17, in verses 1 through 9, we read about a lesson from Thessalonica. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia, And it was a port city with a large population. And so verse 2, it says, Then Paul, as his custom was, he went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And I want us to remember, when we see that word Christ, That's just the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. They both mean anointed one. They both spoke of the promised one who would be an Israelite that would become Savior. Not just Savior of Israel, but Savior of the world. 
And so Paul was saying Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior that we've been waiting for. And as Paul is speaking to the Jews in the synagogue, he's using prophecies from the Old Testament to show that this Messiah that we've been waiting for, he's not just going to be the one that the government will be upon his shoulders and we will call him Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God and Everlasting Father. Yes, that is true and that day is coming, but first he had to suffer and he had to die. Perhaps Paul used verses about Christ like Isaiah chapter 53, starting in verse 8, where it says, And who will declare his generation? Talking about the Christ. For he was cut off from the land of the living. Talking about how he would die. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked that he was crucified like a a common thief or murderer, but with the rich at his death, buried in a rich man's tomb, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Speaking of how this Christ, this Messiah, would take the sins of the world upon himself. And yet this chapter, this book of Isaiah was written some 700 years before Jesus even came on the scene. And so Paul is saying, look, It's in the Old Testament. We knew this would come, and Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that we've been waiting for, and He's fulfilled all of these prophecies. And so, verse 4, it says, And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. So after only three weeks of ministry, a small church is born there in Thessalonica. But even as people are being saved, opposition is on the rise. Look at verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Now notice these unbelieving Jews, they were jealous, and they grabbed Jason and these others who were hosting Paul and Silas and Timothy because they couldn't find Paul and Silas and Timothy. And they condemned the Christians for turning the world upside down. In other words, they blamed the Christians for stirring up trouble. Those dirty Christians and stirring up that trouble. And yet, did you catch what these men had just done? It's so ironic because the angry Jews, they had taken evil men from the marketplace. They had gathered a mob. They set all the city in an uproar. And then they attacked the house of Jason. I think these guys were more guilty of causing trouble, not the Christians, These men were angry because of Paul's success and they were also angry because of the gospel's message. You see, the gospel is intolerant. It says there's only one way to heaven. 
There's only one way to be saved, and it's through Jesus. The gospel is intolerant because it calls sin, sin. And so these Jews were in some ways right when they said Christians are turning the world upside down. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That's upside down in the world's eyes. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 43 also, But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Again, that's upside down in the world's eyes. You see, every religion in the world teaches the same general message. You need to work and sacrifice and serve, and then, just maybe, you might make it into heaven. And then there's Jesus. He talks about it differently. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, we read, In this the love of God was manifested, or made clear, revealed toward us, that God had sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sins. Praise God. Praise God that He has turned the world upside down, or we might say right side up. He is turning the world right side up by giving salvation as a free gift to any and all who would come to Him, by doing the work for us on our behalf so that we are saved by grace. It sets Christianity apart from everything else because Christianity is the one where God says, you can try, but you're not going to make it. I've done the work for you. You just have to receive the gift. And so, I want us to pause and ask ourselves, has my life been turned upside down by Jesus? Has my life been turned upside down by Jesus? You see, if Jesus truly is our Lord and our Savior, then we're not going to remain the same. Do I seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness? Or do I seek after my own kingdom? Do I seek to die to my flesh every day? Or do I seek to live and walk in my flesh? Do I have my hope in heavenly, eternal promises of God? Or is my hope in earthly, temporary things? Now, I'm not saying that we no longer sin or that we no longer struggle. But Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. You see, if we don't see any evidence in our life that Jesus has turned us right side up or upside down, however you want to look at it, then we should rightfully question whether or not we've truly believed in the Lord and repented from our sin. Because if Jesus truly is our Lord, we're not going to remain the same. And we want to get right with the Lord before it's too late, if we're not right with Him already. Now, look back with me at verse 6. We're going to reread that together. Acts 17, verse 6. But when they did not find them, 
they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So they've pulled the political card. By making it seem like Christians were anti-Rome or anti-Caesar, this mob has a lot more force to their words and to their accusations, more power. And so verse 8, it says, And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Sadly, those in the crowd and the rulers of the city, they took the bait. They took the bait. You see, the angry mob threatened, these Christians will bring Rome to crush us. We will lose our peace, we will lose our good reputation, and we'll lose our freedoms. Our city, the capital of Macedonia, will be ruined. All will be lost. And so the people, the rulers, they all feared. And so they decided, Paul, Silas, Timothy, you're no longer welcome. You need to get out of here. Now, technically, technically, these threats of Jesus versus Rome were not quite accurate. You see, Jesus is indeed the king, but he's the king of a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. His kingdom does not become a physical kingdom until eternity begins for us, until after he comes back and destroys all the things in this world, and creates a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. That's when his kingdom will become physical. Daniel, the prophet, spoke of that day. In Daniel chapter 2, in verse 44, Daniel says, as he's interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, the kingdoms of men, and it shall stand forever. You see, there is coming a day where all human kingdoms and governments will be done away with. And there will only be one king, one kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus our king. And we look forward to that day. And yet, Jesus has not yet come back to establish that kingdom. Why? We read about it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. He's not putting it off for no reason. He's not being lazy about His promise to come back and be king, as some count slackness. But the Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, Jesus is waiting postponing his righteous judgment, his righteous crushing of all the kingdoms of this earth and all those who have rejected him so that more people will believe in him, so that more people will surrender their lives to him. Sadly, there are many people today who buy into the same lie that the people and rulers of Thessalonica bought into. It was the lie that if I believe in Jesus, it's going to cause trouble in my life. And therefore, it's not worth it. Some people say, well, if I believe in Jesus, it might ruin my reputation. If I believe in Jesus, then it's going to ruin some relationships. 
If I follow after Jesus, then my world is going to get turned upside down. And so they choose to reject Jesus in order to avoid trouble. And yet in doing so, their reward will be an eternity of trouble in hell. Even if accepting Jesus means a lifetime of suffering, it's worth it because we escape eternal suffering. Think about this with me. Because we live in a place where we have so much freedom. We don't have to really struggle or suffer as believers, as many of our persecuted brothers and sisters do around the world. Like Paul and Silas and Timothy and those new believers in Thessalonica had to suffer for their faith. You see, Jesus does not promise to fix all of our problems now, but He does promise to do so in heaven. Look at how Paul addresses this idea in his letter to the Thessalonians after he's left. He writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, and he says, And you became followers of us. And of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. So the Thessalonians, they believed in Jesus despite all the suffering that they had to endure. I mean, the people who were telling them about Jesus, they themselves got kicked out after only three weeks. Paul goes on in his letter, in verse 9, and he says, How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, Paul even reminds the Thessalonians, reminding them that in turning to Jesus, they both have eternal life and deliverance from the wrath to come, deliverance from hell. Finally, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 3, he wanted to encourage them in their faith, so that no one should be taken or shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Appointed to what? Affliction. Suffering. 4, verse 4, In fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened. And you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. Notice Paul's concern, because he knew that they were suffering, he knew that they were enduring hardship simply for following Jesus, and he was worried, I I hope Satan hasn't convinced them that this isn't worth it. You see, Satan loves to question God and His Word. In Genesis, it was, did God really say you can't eat the fruit here? And here in Thessalonica, Paul thought, well, Satan's going to question, did God really say he was going to give you peace and joy? Did God really say all this tribulation was worth it? Wasn't it easier before you were a Christian when you could just kind of blend in and you didn't have to go against the flow? But Paul was encouraged to find that these new believers in Thessalonica were standing strong in their faith, growing in their faith, because they understood that this Christian life would be hard and difficult, but they also understood that their hope was in eternal life, which made, no matter what they experienced, made it worth it, because it was temporary. And so in verses 10 through 15 in Acts chapter 17, we now read a lesson from Berea. 
Verse 10, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they're escaping at night. The mob is threatened, so they're sending them out. And if you look at the map, Berea was another city about 30 miles from Thessalonica. And so verse 10 continues, When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. Notice the example that these Bereans give us. They were open to hearing Paul's message, Paul's sharing of the gospel. But at the same time, they didn't accept them until they first verified it with Scripture. And so every day, daily it says, they searched the Scriptures to see if what Paul and Silas and Timothy were sharing lined up with God's Word. And keep in mind too, this is way before the printing press, right? They're going to the synagogue every day because they've got maybe one scroll for the whole city that they can look through and see, okay, yes, this is what the Messiah was going to do. He was going to suffer and die and bear our sins. You see, God's Word is our source of truth. And our next fill in the blank, it says we must never reinterpret the Bible based on life experiences, feelings, traditions, or the opinions of others. We cannot reinterpret the Bible based on those things. We need to let God's Word speak for itself. And that goes for when I'm teaching as well. Please don't take what I say as truth without verifying it with the Word of God. I'm a sinner just like you. I could accidentally say something wrong. I could purposely say something wrong just to mess with you, right? Just to see if you're paying attention. So, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. If an idea doesn't line up with Scripture, keep the Scripture, ditch the idea. Hold fast to the Word of God. The Bereans compared Paul's message with Scripture. They saw that it lined up, and so many of the Bereans believed in Jesus. And they became Christians. But, verse 13, When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. These guys were persistent. They followed them. And so then immediately, verse 14, the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed. They departed. So once again, Paul's ministry is cut short as he's trying to reach these new people in this new city and share the gospel. And these angry unbelievers have now followed him from Thessalonica to again stir up the crowd and get them to go against Paul. And so once again, Paul is forced out. And yet, these persecutors, they desire to silence Paul's message, but in fact, what they were doing is they were just pushing it further and further. 
they were ensuring that the message continued to spread to new cities, that more people began to hear the good news of Jesus. We sang in that song today, you take what the enemy meant for evil and you use it for good. I love it when that happens. And here we see that here. As Satan says, yeah, we got Paul out of here. And God says, yeah, he's going to the next place. He's going to keep teaching. As the Thessalonians finally got Paul out of the city, they thought, yes, we're done with Paul. And because Paul couldn't get back there, he wrote a letter and then another letter to them. And so because Paul couldn't stay in Thessalonica for two years like he did in Corinth, we get extra Bible because of it. I love it. And so, if you look at the map, Paul's been shipped off onto the sea, and he ends up in Athens, which will be his last stop before the city of Corinth. In verses 16 through 34, we read about the gospel being preached in Athens. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So hold on right there. The first thing we notice about Paul's ministry here is he went to the synagogue to share the gospel with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers. But then he also went to the marketplace to share the gospel with whoever showed up to buy groceries. You see, Paul wasn't going to wait for people to come to the synagogue to hear about Jesus. He wanted to go to where they were at. And so if we want to reach people for Jesus, we need to meet them where they are at. Be willing to go to them on their turf and ask them and share with them about Jesus. Some would be willing to come to church if we would but invite them to come. Others would not be so willing, but perhaps they would be willing to talk about Jesus in the front yard or over dinner. We want to be a church that meets people where they are and invites them to consider Jesus and what he has done for them. Verse 18, it says, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered Paul, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, Well, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because Paul preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. That was a certain hill in the city of Athens, also called Mars Hill, where all the philosophers would gather in this place and it was the place of discussion and forum and talking about things. And so they brought Paul there, saying in verse 19, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Doesn't that sound fun? Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, And he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through, and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. 
Greek archaeologists have estimated that there were over 3,000 shrines and temples to different gods and goddesses in Athens alone. 3,000 shrines. All these different gods that were being worshipped by the people there. And they were so superstitious that they even made an altar and a shrine to the unknown god, just in case they forgot one. They can offer some things to him and say, don't kill us, right? We want to be on your good side, even though we don't know who you are, okay? And so, Paul uses this shrine to the unknown God to begin speaking about Jesus. Look at verse 24. Paul says, God, God who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, He does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands, as though He needed anything, since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. Remember the crowd he was talking to, they worshipped Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. So Paul's pointing out the unknown God that you're worshipping, he's the one true God. He's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of life even now. God doesn't live in man-made temples, nor does he need anything. And so verse 26, Paul says, And God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. Paul declares that God made all people from one blood, from Adam and Eve. Though we can be diverse in what we look like, we all come from the same blood. We're one big family. We were all created in God's image, and yet because of the fall in Genesis 3, we're all born sinners. We're all born in need of a Savior. And look at how Paul points us to our need of a Savior in verse 26. Paul says, And He, God, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. Amazingly, Paul explains that God specifically determines when and where we live so that we can seek and find the Lord. The sovereign, all-knowing Creator places you and me in the world when and where it will be most advantageous for us to find Him. Which brings us to our next point in your note sheet. If a person seeks to know God, God will reveal Himself. God will reveal Himself to those who seek to know Him. We read in Psalm 145, starting in verse 18, it says, The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. He also will hear their cry and save them. Think about this with me. God wants to save all people. He specifically places us to encourage their getting saved. And He's waiting to come back so that more people will get saved. Amazing. That's God's heart for you and for me and for the world. Now Paul continues teaching the crowd who God is in verse 28. Paul says, For in God we live and move and have our being, 
as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. So Paul quotes from their own poets, their own poets who said that we are the offspring of God. Now, Paul is not saying that God had lots and lots of kids and we are all his spirit babies. Okay? The Bible is clear that Jesus is the only begotten Son of the Father. Paul is simply using this example from their own poets to explain that we are made in God's image. Therefore, God is not created by our hands like a man-made idol of stone or wood that we carved and then worshipped. No, it's the other way around. We're created by God. He made us. Verse 30, Paul says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Now he brings it to the response. Paul says, all men everywhere, God commands to repent. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you've ever broken God's law, then you are guilty. If you've ever told a lie, you've broken God's law. If you've ever stolen something, then you've broken God's law. If you've ever hated someone, Jesus says, then you're guilty of murder in your heart. You've broken God's law. If you've ever looked at somebody with lust, then Jesus says, you've committed adultery in your heart. You've broken God's law. And you're just as guilty as I am. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And because we are all guilty, Paul is warning us, saying we need to repent before it's too late. Paul says in verse 31, Why do we need to repent? Well, it's because He, God, has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him, Jesus, from the dead. Your next fill in the blank. In the end, there is coming a day of judgment. In the end, there is coming a day of judgment. We get more details about this coming judgment in Revelation chapter 20. Starting in verse 11, the Apostle John is writing as he sees. And John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Can we just pause for a moment and try to imagine what that would look like? Try to imagine that God in all of His glory, in all of His power, in all of His strength, He's so overwhelming that heaven and earth try to flee away from Him because He's that awesome, that holy. Verse 11 continues and it says, And there was found no place for them. They were unsuccessful in fleeing from God. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, 
by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is hell. If you have repented from your sin and believed in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, then your name is written in the book of life. Your sins are paid for. But for anyone who has not turned from their sin, has not yet believed in Jesus, then they are under God's judgment and doomed to the lake of fire. This is why Paul warns us, declaring that God is the creator of all things. And because He created you and He created me, because He created us, He has the authority to command you to repent, to get right with Him. Because He doesn't want you to go to hell. But He wants to save you and to rescue you. And so now let's look at how the crowd responded to Paul's message in verse 32 in Acts 17. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Some mocked Paul's message. Others said, we'll hear you again about this. And yet, interestingly, it says Paul left. He didn't stick around for them to hear it again. Apparently, they weren't really genuinely interested in hearing it again. It was more just a putting it off. That's interesting. I'll think about that. Maybe when I'm 80 or 90 or 100, I'll think about that. But not right now. My life is really good. I don't want it to get turned upside down. I don't want you to change any of that. Finally, we see a third message, a third response, <clears throat> that some joined Paul and believed. And the moment they believed, their future changed from eternal suffering to eternal paradise. Not because those people were good, not because those people had earned it, but because those people had believed in Jesus and received the free gift of salvation. There's a very gifted evangelist named Ray Comfort, and he gives us a great metaphor regarding our salvation. So I'm going to steal it. He says there's two men on a plane. The first man is given a parachute, and he is told this parachute will make your flight better. He's a little skeptical, but he he goes ahead, he puts on the parachute, and he sits down in his seat, and he immediately notices, boy, it's real heavy on his shoulders, and it's kind of tight around his chest. And he can't sit back in his seat. He's kind of sitting like this because he's got the parachute on his back. But he's trying to enjoy the flight nonetheless. And as he looks around, he sees some of the other passengers on the flight that are looking at him with curious expressions. Others are flat out mocking him like, what is this guy doing? And after a while, he decides this was some kind of trick or just a lie, but this isn't making my flight better. And so he takes the parachute off and he throws it on the floor. The second man in our story is also on the flight, and he's also given a parachute. 
But he's told that he needs this parachute because at any moment during the flight, he'll be jumping from 25,000 feet. He will need it to survive. And so he gratefully, he puts on the parachute and he straps it down. He's not worried about how tight it feels around his chest. He's not worried about the weight upon his shoulders. He's not worried about sitting up comfortably in his flight seat. Nor is he worried about the responses of those around him who are watching him, mocking him. All he's worried about is surviving the jump that's to come. And he's grateful that he has the parachute. You see, in our salvation, there's coming a jump. It's a lot worse than a 25,000 foot jump with no parachute. It's judgment day. You see, if we look to Jesus as our Savior and we expect, Lord, you're going to make my life better. My, my people around me, they're going to love me. My relationships are going to be healed. I'm going to be financially secure. I'm not going to go hungry. I'm never going to lose my job. Everything's going to go handy dandy in my life because of Jesus. You're looking at Jesus as the wrong type of Savior. Now, does Jesus bless us? Absolutely. Every good thing comes from the Father. He does bless us with earthly blessings, but that's not why we believe in Jesus. The reason we believe in Jesus is so that we can be saved from our sin, saved from judgment day, saved from hell, and saved into an eternal everlasting relationship with the God and Creator who made you and loves you and died for you and wants to know you, and wants to enjoy that relationship with you for all eternity. May we make sure that we not only have Jesus, our parachute, on, but that we're understanding our hope is in the eternal, not in this life. Maybe you're here today, and you think, Following Jesus will bring you too much trouble in life. Don't be fooled. Not following Jesus will cause a lot more trouble and it will last forever. Maybe you don't think you need to follow Jesus because God is good. God is love. Maybe He'll let everybody go to heaven because He's so loving. Don't be fooled. It is because God is good that there is coming a day of judgment. Think about this with me. Imagine that there was a man who tried to murder you and your family. He was unsuccessful, but he was caught and arrested. And after a few months, his trial arrives, and the judge declares you're guilty to this, to this attempted murderer. All the evidence is against him. We know what he tried to do. But because he hasn't tried to murder anybody in the last few months, he's free to go. He's been a good boy. Would that be a good judge? No, wouldn't. Would that be justice? No, it wouldn't. Would you feel safe at night with him out on the streets? No, we wouldn't. You see, God is a good judge. He's not going to let sin go unpunished. But the Bible says that God is both just and the justifier. Now let's turn the tables here. We're the ones on the hot seat on trial. And God declares, you're guilty of sin. You've fallen short of perfection. You are guilty of sinning against God. 
And yet, after declaring you as guilty, he then gets down from the podium, he takes off his robes, and he says, I've paid for your sin. But that only happens if you've repented and believed in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. If you have, then your sins have been paid in full. Your sins in the past, the sins you still struggle in, the sins that you might struggle in in the future, Jesus has paid for them in full on the cross. And he offers us eternal life for any and all who would believe in him. And so for those of us who have already believed, may we be so encouraged that we have a God that does everything possible to save us without forcing us into that relationship with him. And if you're here today and you've not yet believed in Jesus, or maybe you've been looking at Jesus to make your best life now, to fix your life here, to bring heaven to your life now, then the harsh news is you're living for your own kingdom, not the kingdom of Jesus. But the good news is that he invites you to repent and to seek him and believe in him. Because Jesus is our parachute. And a parachute is not for comfort, but a parachute is for survival. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you loved us enough to create us knowing that we would sin against you. Then, Lord, to come down and dwell among us, to live the perfect life that we could not, to endure the arrest and the mocking and the beating and the suffering and ultimately the death on the cross all for us so that you could pay for our sin. Lord, we're so grateful. If there's anybody here or listening online that is ready to finally repent, turn away from living for yourself and to accept Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, your parachute for eternity, that I invite you as our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed just to pray this with me and say, Lord, I know that I am guilty of sinning against you. I know that I am worthy and, and deserving of judgment. But Lord, you paid for my sin on the cross. Lord, you have set me free Lord, would you please fill me with your Spirit and change my life, turn my life right side up from the inside out. Lord, we just surrender to you. And God, we say, would you use us for your name and for your glory? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together. If you made a decision today 
to make Jesus your Lord and your Savior, let us know. We would love to encourage you and pray for you in this new relationship you have with Jesus. If you're not ready yet to make that decision, we're so glad you're here. If you have questions, come talk. We're so glad you would come and join with us. If we can pray for you, come forward. Let us pray for you for anything going on in your life. And as you leave, say hello to somebody else who's on the flight with us. And bless them. Have a great week. Thanks for coming. God bless.